Welcome to our How to Wow Summer Run 2023 and a series of wondrous conversations recorded live at Carfest last year. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being, music, food, superstar and motorcar festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org. Carfest.org, that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guests, hosts, and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Brydon, Jimmy Carr, Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, the actual village people, Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reapy, the happy pair, Melanie Sykes. The Feelings, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday weekend. And today's pop-up special How to Wow Carfest podcast features stars, I should say, Dr. Rung and Chatterjee in conversation with Vassos Alexander, our very own Vassos. This is a brilliant and really useful, informative, instructive chat entitled 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. Once again, starring Dr. Rung and Chatterjee in conversation with our very own Vassos Alexander. How many other people come on stage barefoot? I'm going to join you, Rong, and you'll do it, man. It's sunny. Talk to me about it. Take your shoes off. Take your shoes off. Enjoy yourselves. Let's start with the barefoot thing. Why are you barefoot? Go on. Um, Why am I barefoot? A couple of reasons, but I used to have chronic back issues back in the day. And I tried, like many people who've got chronic pain, I I tried physio, I tried scans, I went to chiropractors, and, you know, everything helped a little bit until I. But I kind of, and a lot of people said, wrong, and you're six foot seven, it's just something you're going to have to put up with. And I refused to accept that in my 20s. And I ended up uh, finding a guy called Gary Ward who helped me understand that my right foot was the cause of a lot of my back problems. Um, and I'd been in orthotics and everything. And essentially, as I got my right foot to work, all my back problems went away. And um, I then delved into the science and barefoot shoes. I, I wear them all the time, basically. I live in them, and there's a lot of science now on them in terms of what they do when you just live in them and walk around in them. But I feel really good when I wear barefoot shoes. I've tried them with loads of my patients, so I try and be barefoot as much as I possibly can, even though it's a bit hippie. But as I get older, I'm embracing my hippie side as well. But it's how we were, you know, that's why we look like what we look like. We're persistent hunters. We used to, you know, we used to run barefoot over the, uh, the African savannah and we would, you know, we would chase down Yeah, and look, prey. you know, there's a study from University of Liverpool eight months ago, just four months of uh, wearing uh, minimalist shoes. So these are shoes with no cushion. This is not to run in. That's a whole separate story, right? This is just to walk around in, go to your job in, go to the shops in. Foot strength went up by 68%, right? So you're not doing any... Think about that for another muscle in your body. How much work you would have to do to increase the strength by 68%. And then you, the question is, well, why is that important? Well, as you get older, right, you want good foot strength. You want the ability to be balanced, to have good stability. And I can tell you, I've been prescribing them to patients for about 10 years now. And the amount of people who tell me, oh, I used to get knee pain, I used to get hip pain, you used to get a backache, it's now gone. 
Uh, and we don't realize that. And I actually genuinely believe in about 15, 20 years that most of us will start our footwear journey in minimalist shoes. Um, I, I really think the science will will get to that point. So that's me trying to give a short answer to something I'm very passionate about. Well, you once gave me a pair of minimalist shoes and, and I absolutely love them. And I actually, I don't live in them as much as I want to because I sort of subscribe to the if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I'm, and I'm currently not injured. But I sort of agree with everything he just said. Um, I first, so I first met Rongan um, a good few years ago now, maybe six, seven, eight years ago. I was on his brilliant podcast, um, just give you a podcast a plug. Feel Thank better, you. live more. Yep. Um, it's fantastic. Does everyone subscribe. You should all subscribe. Um, you wanted to talk to me about running. And all the t- we, we went into the studio at Radio 2, where I was working at the time. And I sat in Chris's chair. And I was like, oh, this, this feels right. <laughs> um, but all the time, I was thinking, where do I know this guy from? And then I realized halfway through our interview, I'd seen you maybe the night before cleaning your teeth really weirdly on television. Do you honestly clean your teeth like that? It was like that. It was like backwards. Uh, okay, so uh, let me give context here to, to what Vasa is talking about. So some of you may know that in uh, 2015, I, I did a, a BBC One series called Doctor in the House, where essentially families who were struggling with their health and well-being for many years and usually were under doctors or specialists and were still struggling, I came into their lives for four to six weeks to live alongside them to see if I could help. Now, one of the proudest things I've I've done in my professional and personal life, I would say, really, I got to know these families really well, but I remember the very first day I was ever filming. So, you know, I know this is going to be on BBC One. I'm like, okay, quite a lot of high pressure when I wasn't used to it. And I got to this family's house in Shrewsbury. And I was due to stay there that night. So sleep in the family's house. This was part of the show. You know, the doctor is in the house, quite literally. And so I knew I had to take my stuff for the evening. And it was about 11.30. We finished filming and they said, okay, uh, we want to see you get ready for bed. I was like, okay. Um, And they said, can you brush your teeth in the bathroom and we'll film you? And I didn't understand telly at the time, but obviously they want to film that so they can show on telly, oh, this is now the doctor going to bed. And I thought, okay, I'll get my stuff, open up my wash bag. And I said, oh my God, I've got my wife's toothbrush. Uh, And it was a pink toothbrush. And I was like, oh my, they're going to film this for BBC One and I've got a pink toothbrush. So it was a really tiny bathroom. The cameras were in in the bath. And I remember being like at this basin, the cameras were there and I was literally holding this toothbrush and trying to cover the pink with my hand and brush. So can you just turn around? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm good. This is how I brush my teeth. So um, that was my very first day filming. I think that's what Vassos is referring to. So, And a few people did say, is that a pink toothbrush on Twitter? But I think I just about managed to camouflage it. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your book. This, are you okay with me saying... This is my favourite, your book. It's my favourite that I've written, honestly, genuinely. So really happy is. mind, happy life. So this, uh, this session is called 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. And that's the, the, sort of the subtitle of the book. And it starts with a very personal account of your dad coming over to this country as an, and as an immigrant and nearly working himself into an early grave. Well, I would say he did uh, work himself into an early grave, actually. I, I sort of passionately believe that overwork is what killed my dad's. And my dad had quite an extreme case, which I'll just share in just a second. But 
There are elements of that that I see, I've seen in myself, I see in my patients, I see it across society at large. Um, so my dad came to the UK in 1962 when the UK were recruiting a lot of doctors from countries like India because there was a gap here, uh, which is one of the reasons there's so many uh, Asian doctors in this country because there was an active recruitment done when we had a shortage. And my dad was one of those. And basically for 30 years, this is my dad's life. He was a consultant at Manchester Royal Infirmary and he'd work, you know, the day job there, like, I don't know, 8.30 till 6 or 9 till 5, whatever. But he also did uh, GP house calls at night. So I can vividly remember my childhood, my dad's um, coming home from Manchester in, in his Volvo at about sort of half five or six. And then what dad would do is mum would give him dinner in the kitchen. He'd go upstairs. I remember this vividly. He'd brush his teeth. Then he'd come back down and a car would pick him up at 7 p.m., my dad would be out and he'd come back at 7 a.m. Again, have breakfast, brush his teeth and then drive into Manchester. So to keep this short, for basically 30 years, my dad slept three nights a week. He was uh, trying to give us a better life. He was trying to send money home to his family in India. He was trying to do... He fell for the myth, I believe, that many of us do, which is we confuse success and happiness. We think they're the same things. My dad was very successful. I had a great start in life on one level. Um, but it killed dad. And, you know, I, I didn't know then what I know now, which is chronic stress deprivation. Uh, sorry, chronic stress will decimate your immune system. Uh, chronic sleep deprivation will also help um, contribute to the development of autoimmune disease. Right, And, and I'm, what, why I started the, the book with this is because I can now look back on my dad's life and go, and I understand why dad did what he did. You know, he left his country and his friends and his family to, to make a better life in the UK. Right? So he made certain decisions that I don't need to make because he made them. Right? So I'm very grateful for, for what I had. But at the same time, many of us confuse success with happiness in a big, big way. And we think, oh a better job, a pay rise, a better hotel on holiday, a nicer iPhone, it's going to make us happier. And I'm acutely aware that there is a cost of living crisis going on, so I, I don't say this flippantly. But I, I'm here to say, and I've experienced in my own life, that many of us are chasing the wrong things in life. And we'll find out that we end up getting there a lot of the time, and we're still not content. And a, a prime example, John... Um, Vassos mentioned my podcast, and I was on this stage a couple of hours ago um, chatting with Chris, and Chris was sharing the episode that I recently recorded with Johnny Wilkinson, which is a really powerful episode, and I'm pretty, pretty sure most of you know who Johnny Wilkinson is. Yeah? English rugby player. Dropped the... drop goal to win the World Cup in 2003. One yeah. of the great moments. One of, exactly. One of the great British sporting moments. But what's really interesting about Johnny is that he shared with me that at the end of the game, World Cup final, England haven't won the World Cup in years... Ever. Okay, ever, right? So this is the pressure. He said the minute the ball left his foot, he's starting to go down. England win the World Cup the next morning. He can't get out of bed, depressed. He's wondering what's next, right? When he was seven years old, he wrote down, I've got two dreams. Number one, I want to play for England. Number two, I want to win the World Cup. The problem for Johnny Wilkinson is, in his words, not mine, is that he achieved all his dreams at the age of 23. 10 years of anxiety, depression afterwards, real struggle. So the question I left people with a couple of hours ago is, 
just be careful what you're chasing, right? Because would you want what Johnny had if it meant you'd have 10 years of mental health problems afterwards? You might do. You might go, it's worth it. And if you ask Johnny privately, he may share some things with you about, was it worth it? Maybe, maybe not. And I just, I say that, and I've got two young kids, you know, and I'm acutely aware. I, I give the example of Tiger Woods, right? Tiger Woods, incredible golfer, arguably the greatest golfer ever. Many kids, many adults say, I want to be Tiger. I want to swing like Tiger. But here's the problem. If you want Tiger's golf swing, you also have to take every other aspect of his life. You also need his broken marriage, his painkiller addiction, the inner turmoil, uh, the public humiliation he went through. You can't have one without it all. And so I think we need to be very careful who we look up to in society. And can I just share, like, I have had a huge degree of societal success over the past few years. But it doesn't mean I was happy. In fact, for a lot of it, I really wasn't happy, right? Because the immigrant mentality, and I'm going to share this because I think many people can resonate with this. My parents had a lot of discrimination when they came to this country in the, back in the 1960s. So, of course, they don't want me or my brother to go through any of that. So Asian immigrant families absolutely prioritize academic success above anything. So what does my childhood look like? Well, I come home from school with 19 out of 20 in a test, and my parents say to me, why didn't you get 20? What did you get wrong? I come back with 99% in an exam. Why didn't you get 100%? Right? And I basically, the problem here is they were doing this so I would be the best that I could be. But little Rongan took on the idea when I was very little that I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy if I'm not top dog, if I'm not top of the class, if I've not got full marks. So that drives you to be very competitive. That drives you to achieve high degrees of success. But it doesn't mean you're happy underneath. And I can honestly tell you now, in the last two or three years, I've never felt this happy this content, this good. A lot of it is in this book, which is why I spent so long writing it, because I now no longer need external validation for my sense of self-worth. I really like the person I see in the mirror every day now. So whether my book's a bestseller or not, genuinely does not impact how I feel about myself these days. But it's been a lot of work to get there. Well, it should be a bestseller because loads of people's life will be better when they read the book. Um, the first chapter is called Write Your Happy Ending, and we're going to end with your happy ending, if we may. Okay. Um, the next chapter is Eliminate Choice. Um, I, I sort of have this a little bit in microcosm. I mean, it's a gorgeous sunny day today, and I'm sure many of us can think of nothing better than a beautiful swim in a lake. Um, certainly when you live in the middle of London. There's a lake in the middle of London called the Serpentine where I swim every morning, but I swim every morning in the winter as well when it's dark and it's, say, I don't know, what, minus two and there's a horrible wind and, you know, you're getting changed and you're sort of walking over ice to get into the freezing water and it's 4 a.m., 5 a.m., you're not allowed in at 4, um, on your own. <laughs> but I often find myself by the side of the lake undressing not quite knowing how I've got here, because if I'd had any choice in my morning, I know that that is good for me. That sets me up for the day. That gives me some room to take to the breakfast show. And it, you know, and it turbocharges me in many, many ways. And I, and I know that I'm better for doing it, but it's not a diff, an easy thing to do to get into a freezing lake at five o'clock in the morning. Um, 
Is that what you mean by eliminate choice? Just get yourself there. Like I set the alarm at that time, I get out of bed, I drive to the, to the car park or I cycle there and I just sort of sometimes find myself there and if I had any choice in the matter, I'd think, no, it's not that, I'll have another half hour in bed. Yeah, that's just absolutely, I mean, that's one element of it for sure, right? The, the, the overarching theme of that chapter, which is called eliminate choice, is basically we think choice is a good thing. The more choice we have, the better. You know, we want 10, 15 different options of what we're going to eat all these kind of different workouts I could do, all these different things. But what I'm saying is that too much choice becomes a stressor in and of itself. You will recognize that in your life. I, I saw that chapter um, writing about a personal experience, which many of you may resonate with, right? Do any of you watch Netflix from time to time? Yeah? No, I, don't think, I don't think any Ever of you heard of, have heard uh, of Netflix. A new app called Netflix? Yeah. <laughs> but I sort of was saying, you know, when my kids were younger, on a, um, on a Saturday evening, once the kids were in bed, often my wife and I would sit down and try and, find something on Netflix to watch. And more often than not, 45 minutes later, we still haven't agreed, right? We're both slightly pissed off with one another and we end up watching nothing. And we're like, oh no, that's, that's good. you know, you watch what you want, I'll watch what I want, right? And this really speaks to the, judging by the amount of laughs and nods there, I, I suspect many of you know what that feels like. This is, we're living in this society where we have so much choice right? Where you can watch infinite things so that you end up watching nothing because there's too much choice. And so this whole idea is about choose when it matters, don't choose when it doesn't, right? So I'm not saying eliminate all choice from your life. If you are someone who, uh, like for example, I don't know, if there's a few local restaurants we go to and eat now and again as a family, I'll often not look at the menu because I know what I like, right? And for, for someone else that may not work, you may go, I actually really enjoy looking at a menu each time and spending 40 minutes trying to choose. Fine. For me, I know what I like and I'm happy going there and choosing that every time. There are pros and cons. And then what Vassal said, I think, is really interesting because, you know, as a doctor, one of the things I'm often trying to do is help engage my patients in behavior change. And a lot of the time people will say, Doc, you know, that's great, but I don't know what to do. Shall I do yoga or Pilates or running? Uh, if I do run, what shoes shall I get? What T-shirt do I need? Um, I, I've been guilty of this before, and here's the problem. And, and I cover this in my third book, which is all on habit change, called Feel Better in Five. What I said is like, listen, pick one thing and do it. Don't keep looking for new things to do. You're better off doing the same thing every day consistently, even for just five minutes, than trying to decide every time okay, what workout am I going to do now? Is it yoga? Is it Pilates? Is it skipping? Is it jogging? And I see Vassos, you've made a decision. Every morning on my way to work, I go for a swim, right? You've made that decision once. Now, each morning, now, the idea is that you don't procrastinate each morning and go, oh, do I feel like it today? Oh, maybe not today. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Once you made the choice, you start doing it every day. You always feel better when you've done it. But if you left it up to choice, some days it would be, oh, you know, I don't fancy it today. And how many of you recognize that in yourself when you try to make behavior change? So, uh, and I think the problem now is, and I'm possibly guilty of this because I put out content on social media. You know, this workout has all these benefits. If you do this, it has all these benefits. And people get paralyzed with the choice. So if you guys are at SparFest and you're hearing multiple talks, I would challenge you, find one thing in one of the talks, whether it's this one or another one, and go, you know what, I like that. When I get home next week, after the festival of the weekend, I'm going to commit to doing that one thing and, and just see how your life changes. So that's me 
trying to summarise, I, I think, quite a big idea, but in, in quite a practical way. Did that make sense for everyone? What a good answer. Can we have a round of applause for that answer? That is fantastic. Because sometimes there is just too much stuff, especially after a weekend like this. But just pick one thing and start with one thing. And Even if you look at the timetable for this place, you're probably like, oh, God, there's this great thing there and this great thing there. And, right? And then it's But you made hard. the right choice. You definitely made the right choice coming here. But, you know, and so where you can eliminate choice in your life... You know, the truth is, if you see a great talk here or you saw a great talk on the main stage or at Starfest, you know, your weekend would probably be enhanced, it, whichever one you saw, right? So does it really matter which one you end up seeing? You know, it, it's another way of looking at things, I think. Talk to me about the mirror exercise. I've, I've sort of I've earmarked a few of my favourite pages here. One of them, just because you're playing the guitar and it's quite a nice photo. And I just wanted to... Just congratulate you. Thank you. <laughs> do you play the guitar? I, I do for many years. I, I took two years off medicine actually to tour my music around the UK back in the day. In my did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. So you find something new every day. Music is a, has been a huge part of my life for many years. Yeah. You do look so happy and in flow. I, in I love picture. playing. I love singing and playing. Yeah, but um, the mirror exercise. Okay, the mirror exercise is also with self-compassion, right? So even as I sell, say the word self-compassion to a British audience. Uh, I'm aware that I might need to justify what I mean. How many of you have ever called yourself a loser? No yeah, one? I, I have. A few of you. So the rest of you are really kind to yourself. Just about four of you are unkind to yourself in your heads. Is that right? How many of you have called yourself a loser before? Come on. And I've done it all the yeah. time. Or how many have called yourself, oh, you stupid thing, I can't believe you did that. Right? Now, this sounds really quite funny and trivial. But here's the reality, and, and I spoke to this uh, incredible lady called Professor Kristen Neff on my podcast about a year and a half ago. She's been studying self-compassion, so kindness to yourself, for over 20 years now. And her research has clearly shown that when you talk negatively to yourself in your head, you activate your body's stress response. Right? So think about that. It is not trivial. You raise levels of the stress hormone cortisol when you are mean to yourself, right? It's something we, I used to do this all the time. I would always call myself a loser and try and motivate myself to do better. And I have changed that over the last four or five years. So there's quite a lot of exercises in the book on how we can actually be kinder to ourselves. How can we treat ourselves as well as we might do our child or our friends? Because most of us don't, right? And we think it's just a small thing, but it really isn't. And the science also shows that people who, treat themselves well, they have more motivation. Right? How many of you think you need to beat yourself up to motivate yourself? Right? I, 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 I thought I had to do that. But that is very short-lived when you try and motivate yourself like that. So the mirror exercise is one of many exercises about how we can start to be kinder to ourselves. You know, can you look in the mirror for five or ten seconds and actually look at yourself Right? Many of you will find if you try and do that, you can't. You'll have to look away. It's too uncomfortable. Right? And I tell you, you know, there's a, there's a patient I saw in my clinic a few years ago. I'm trying to remember all the details now. She's a 48-year-old lady who had uh, pain all over her body. She had bloating. She had upper abdominal discomfort. And she tried all kinds of medication. Nothing was working. Right, she, she came to see me. Before she came to see me, she'd made all kinds of changes to her lifestyle. You know, her diet was fantastic. She moved her body regularly. I did all these kind of blood tests. Everything was normal. I thought, what is going on here? And I noticed the way she would talk to herself. 
So I started to probe there and, and investigate a little bit. And then as I started to get to know her, she said she shared something with me that she always ended up getting into relationships with men about 10 years older than her. They were usually married and they would treat her really badly. Right? And I got, I got there through hearing the way she spoke to herself. And I thought, honestly, because there's a huge correlation between our inner voice and the way we deal with uh, conflict in our life and physical symptoms, right? This is not known about enough for me. And I basically helped her. She didn't want to see a therapist, so I spent six months helping her with things like the mirror exercise, with the way she would talk to herself. And I'm telling you, after six to seven months, she ended up in a relationship with a guy her own age who was single, who treated her really well. And three months later, pretty much all her symptoms had vanished. And I saw for the next year, none of those symptoms came back. Right, So the way we talk to ourselves is relevant for your motivation, it's relevant for your happiness. And I'll tell you what, if any of you are parents, right, and I'm a parent, and this is one of the big motivations for me to change, if you curse yourself, if you talk down to yourself, what do you think your kids are learning? Yeah? And I don't say this to be mean to anyone or call anyone out. I used to do this. But if you say, oh, you stupid thing, or you're such a loser, what do you think your kids are going to learn saying as well, right? Many people do this, particularly, I guess, a lot of my patients are female, so I've seen it in a lot of uh, my female patients. And it's just a way of catching it. And I've been working on this for a few years now to the point where I'm pretty good most of the time. And I remember playing snooker with my son or pool about two years ago. And some of my old, I was pretty tired, some of my old habits came out and I think I missed what I consider an easy shot. And I think I said, oh, man, I can't believe you missed that. And my son, who was nine at the time, said, Daddy, that's not very kind. Don't talk like that to yourself. And I was really chuffed, actually, thought, because if he's learning and he's calling me out, it helps me change my behavior. This is hard for a British audience to get a win on something like this. But I can tell you, once you start to talk to yourself kindly, your life will change. But you've got to commit to it. Okay, everyone. Are you sitting comfortably? Because prepare to not be. Um, when we were having What's lunch... coming next? Yeah, here we go. When we were having lunch, just uh, where we walked from, just by the main stage, um, I was... A, a friend of mine, Chrissy, said, is it, is, that, is it any good, this book? And I said, yes, it's brilliant. I bet you I could turn to any page and there would be something really good that would, you know, that would, that would help. And I just happened to turn to a random page. Let's see where it is. We smile... 30% less when our phone is present. Everyone's got a phone here on them, right? We smile 30% less... Let's hide our phones now, mate. ...when our phone... No, well, I sort of need it to, for the timing oh, sorry. thing. <laughs> but we're still smiling. <laughs> Imagine how happy we'd be if it, if it wasn't there. I mean, we've got, we've got a problem in society, haven't we? And it's called mobile... In fact, we shouldn't call them mobile phones. We should call them... Mini computers. Mini distraction devices. Yeah. Um, look, here's the problem. We all know it, right? We all intuitively know that these phones are distracting us a lot. But I don't think we realize 
the impact this stuff is having on us day to day. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor, Dr. Andrew Schieberman, Tim Ferriss, and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and has helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now, he swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality, all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and much more in one simple drinkable habit ag1 is great bang for my buck as it replaces a lot of these other supplements like a daily multivitamin minerals pre and probiotics for my gut health adaptogens and a greens blend literally all in one scoop of powder i think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop science-driven formulation of vitamins probiotics and whole food source nutrients ag1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition i need Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. I could talk about many things here, but I want to talk about relationships because the amount of people, the amount of my patients whose relationships have literally been adversely affected by phone use is incredible, right? When you're looking at your phone, you're, genu- you're generally not paying attention to what's going on around you. We've got lots of science and studies on this. And how many of you recognize if you've got a partner, like in the evening, you're both trying to communicate and one of you is sort of kind of half listening and half staring at your phone. There's quite a few couples looking at each other at the moment. I'm not trying to start a fight. I have done this as well, right? But this is eroding the quality of our relationships day in, day out, to the point where two years later, often we found that we just haven't bonded, having quality time where we're not distracted. And in my my second book on stress a few years ago, I wrote quite a a punchy, controversial statement, which is many of us having eye affairs with our phones. Like you've got couples lying in bed together in the evening and both of them are on their own devices, so physically they're in the same bed, the same place, but mentally they're literally millions of miles away. You're, you're in your own personalized world where you can watch whatever you want, but the cost of that is intimacy. The cost of that is connection. And I, I share a really powerful story in the book of a, a couple uh, who came to see me in, in my GP practice, and literally the only thing they needed to save their marriage was better use of phone time. Like, Discipline phones or anything for one hour, we're not going to, when we're interacting, be on our phones. We're going to put them in a different room. They are insidious. There's also a really good study from America. Um, again, not to make people feel uncomfortable, but they, they, they measured parents looking around a museum with their children, right? One group were looking around and they didn't have smartphones on them. The other group had smartphones on them. And the experience 
of looking around that museum for both the children and the parents was phenomenally different when there was no phone present. They enjoyed it more. I mean, it's not hard to believe that, is it? The phones aren't here. You know, some of the best times in my life were where I've sort of lost my phone or left it in the car. And then you feel free. So there is a price to all this connection. Now, I'm not saying we should get rid of these phones. Of course, there are so many benefits as well, right? But be mindful. And if you haven't intentionally set some rules in your life about how you're using your phone or in your family environment when you're using it, you're going to find that that thing is controlling your life, whether you want to believe that or not. And we're seeing that your relationships are probably being eroded. So there's, there's a whole menu in there on things you can do. You can read some of them. And we have a rule in, at our meal table at home, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, phones are not allowed. And you know what? The truth is, I know my wife is here, or better if she's not for this next bit, but I think she probably will be here in a minute. But you know, we used to fall out a little bit on this because she, I just quickly need to do the accounting shop. I'm like, hey, babe, I understand that. But once we allow that into the dinner table for whatever reason, it's just a slow, it's just a, it's just an erosion down. We're really strict on it. No phones at the dinner table under pretty much any circumstances. And again, I'm not lecturing anyone that you should do this. My approach is always, say, look, I'm going to present you with some options. Have a think about what options work for you. Maybe you're a carer for someone. You can't do that. Fine. But if you're not intentional about it, and there's something we have to teach our children, because, you know, we, some of us can still remember a time when these things didn't exist, but our kids can't. And so I'm really passionate about this. I know it's not what we want to hear, right? But the truth is they are eroding our relationships. You've got to be really careful with how much you use them. Well, I've, I've, we've got people quite uncomfortable with the whole talking <laughs> Sorry. themselves in the mirror, then the mobile phones. So let's just complete the trilogy, especially for this British audience, Talking to strangers. Well, talking to strangers, yeah, there's a chance on this because I, I think it's really important. How many of you have spoken to strangers at Carfest so far? Right. And how many of you would call yourself generally normally a bit shy and introverted? You possibly wouldn't do it normally. Right. And so those of you who feel like that and have done it here, how did you feel afterwards? Did you feel better? Yes, you yeah. did. You know you did. I think most of us do. And all the science and research supports that and says, actually, we feel better when we interact with other people. Uh, and this is not about deep and meaningful interactions, just low-grade, hey, how are you doing? A nod, a smile from people you don't know. There's this really lovely paper um, from 2021 by these psychologists, and they call this vitamin S, the social nutrients. right? And literally, when you exchange a brief positive glance with a stranger things in your brain start to change right it makes you it makes you feel good uh it helps you feel less anxious you feel really well connected to the world around you and this is one of the huge problems in lockdowns actually one of the big big problems because a lot of introverts said at the start oh this will be no problem for me you know i've been waiting for this moment my entire life right loads of introverts said that and within four to six weeks most were saying oh man, yeah, I'm an introvert, but I'd often go with my laptop to the local Starbucks and I'd be by myself, but I'd say hi to the barista or I'd, I'd hear the kind of hub drum of human, uh, you know, human noise around me and I really miss it. We are wired to be around other people. It's who we are. And so talking to strangers, even brief glances, and you're doing that this weekend. This is why we feel so good at festivals like this. It's not just about maybe seen a great band or a great talk. It's the fact that you're with other people who are 
actually have got similar interests to you. And it changes who you are. And here's the funny thing about it, is that we don't think it will. Many of us think, oh, I'm better off staying to myself. There was this brilliant study in Chicago, right? They got these Chicago commuters. And what they did is that the psychologists basically split them into different groups. One group had to go on their train to work and do what they normally would do. One group had to actively seek out someone else and make small talk with them. Uh, And the third group, I think, had to keep themselves to themselves and not talk to anyone. And interestingly enough, the group who actually had to seek out other people and make small talk with them, I think about 80 to 90% of them felt calmer, they felt less anxious, and their feelings of happiness, the happiness boost they got, lasted the entire day. And then when they asked them how many of them thought they were going to feel better afterwards, it was only about 20%. So your brain is almost trying to trick you. Your brain is trying to say, no, you're going to feel a bit of an idiot. They won't want to talk to you. You're better off keeping yourself to yourself. But time and time again, the research shows that when we make that effort, we talk to a stranger and we get something positive back from them. It changes who we are. And then you think, okay, Chicago, America, it's different. It would never work in London. Well, you know what? They came to London. Now, it wasn't on the tube, I might add, right? But it was on commuter trains into London. They ran the same experiment, the same results, right? So it's who we are. And I tell you, as a, as a, as a dad, Vastas, you may resonate with this. I'm a very chatty person in general. So I often go running at the weekends with my son. And my son has grown up with me basically chatting to anyone where you know, we're running, say, hey, how you doing? How's it going? And he's obviously picked up on that because I don't think he naturally wants to do that. And about a year ago, I remember we're in our local park and we were running together and someone was running past him and he exchanged a few words with the runner. And then suddenly I saw him sprint off. And I remember at the end of our run, I said, hey, what happened? He goes, he just basically said he felt so good afterwards it gave him a, like a turbo boost to start running faster. And so I'm just trying to illustrate in multiple different ways, talking to other people, even if you're an introvert, is really who we are. And the more you can do it, the happier and more content you're going to be. I'll chat to you all through the London Marathon. You'll love it. <laughs> Let's do it, mate. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so look, you've got um, to be nice to yourself in the mirror. You've got to basically throw away your mobile phone and you've got to talk to strangers. But on the plus side, you get to go on holiday every day. Yeah, that's one of my favorite chapters, right? This is a concept um, that I wrote about that I'm really passionate about. And, and what does that mean, go on a holiday every day, right? Because it can be a bit controversial. What do you mean, go on a holiday every day? What I mean, right? How many of you went on a summer holiday this year? Yeah, did you go abroad? Say local, you went abroad? Yeah, quite a lot of people went abroad this year. Okay, so let's think about what is it that a holiday gives us, right? There's all kinds of things, aren't there? Sun, maybe some drinks by the pool time away with your family, right? I get all that. And and of course, all of us get different things from our holidays. But I think one of the big things people get is perspective, right? How many of you find that when you're on the plane or you're in a different environment, you just have this big picture view on on your life? Like the little things that you're worried about day to day, you can just see with a great degree of perspective. Does anyone else feel that when you're on holiday? Yeah, it's a huge thing, I think. You know, I know if I'm on a plane, as soon as I've taken off, I can suddenly see little things in my life and go, why was I worried about that? You know, it's not actually that important. And the, the way I came up with this idea was um, the guy who videos my podcast, Gareth, he used to work um, in the Lake Districts in Sellafield. 
And he said, right, that um, one of his bosses had on his table a counter. And literally, it would say 66, 65, 64. He'd walk in and go, what's that? He'd say, oh, 64 days till I'm in Florida on a beach where I get to chill. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You're living your entire life counting down for that one week a year where you get to chill. And I thought, well, holidays give us perspective, right? So why do we need to wait for that one week a year? Take a daily holiday as basically saying, even for five or 10 minutes, what do you do each day that gets you to step outside your life so you can look back on it? Like for Vassal, that might be a run. It's always a run for me. Right, you go for a run. And I bet you when you come back, little things that you thought you yeah, were... Yeah, absolutely. Got a different I go for a run for my mind as much, maybe more maybe than... Maybe more than my legs and my body. Yeah, so it could be meditation, it could be journaling, it could be sitting by yourself in the morning with a cup of coffee and not spending 10 minutes on Instagram, just thinking about your life. And I would say it's the most important thing I do for my health and well-being is I take a daily holiday every morning. I have a practice of solitude where I'll do a variety of different things, but it's me by myself. And what it does for me is it allows me to get in touch with what I'm really feeling. And the analogy I draw is when I was a junior doctor in Edinburgh, I remember, I remember being taught about something called early warning systems. So I remember being mesmerized by this when I was about 23, where the, the consultant said, look, with these sick patients, if we do their heart rate, their respiratory rate, their oxygen saturations, their blood pressure every half an hour, we can start to predict which patients are going to end up in high dependency or in intensive care in four to six hours. Uh, this is awesome. We can get ahead of it and make a change by identifying who's going to go there. And that's what taking a daily holiday does for us. Right? It's our own early warning system. It allows you to figure out stuff starting to go wrong before it goes wrong. So for me, for years, and I, I was so busy, I never noticed that if I'm starting to get stressed or you know, there's too much work in my life or whatever, I will get attention in my right upper back. It just starts to feel tight. But for years, I was never aware of it. Now, with my daily holiday every morning before my wife and kids have woken up, if I'm starting to feel that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, wrong. And if you don't make a change here, if you don't either go to bed earlier tonight or you don't reduce some of your work commitments, you're going to go over the edge and it's going to affect your relationships and all kinds of things in your life. So I am passionate and but that we should all take a daily holiday and it doesn't need to be, it can be five minutes or 10 minutes, but some examples are, you go for a walk, you go for a run, you do some journaling, some meditation, some breath work, or just sitting in silence with a cup of tea. Allow your thought... Here, you know, linking this to the phone for a second, one of the problems I see with mental health, and I see this with a lot of my younger patients as well, it's often in the morning you will wake up with all kinds of anxious thoughts whirring around your brain. Many of us do but we distract ourselves from them. We go straight onto this thing, straight onto Instagram, straight onto the news, and we've never allowed ourselves to process them. So I think five or 10 minutes first thing in the morning, if you're able to, where you're not allowing the world to dictate what you're looking at, you just tune, I do this with a lot of my teenage patients as well, and it is game-changing. Even if you just write down anything that's coming up, you know, I'm feeling nervous about my job today. I feel like I'm a crap colleague or a crap husband. Whatever it is, simply writing that down helps you to take it out of your mind and onto paper. So uh, I, I've sort of started off with a holiday. I've gone into all kinds of different areas. But did, did that make sense? Was that clear? Brilliant. Yeah. Great.
Great. And it just, it works so much. You don't have to, you don't have to have that counter. Right, we're going to overrun a little bit, but we'd love to, to take some questions for the floor. If you have questions for Rongan, just, we're going to come around with a microphone, put your hand up, and we're going to whiz through as many questions as possible. Yes. Hi, Rongan. Hello. Um, I think I know the answer. Who were, has been your most inspirational guest you've had on your podcast? <coughs> Apart from Vassos, <coughs> uh, of course, um, I, I struggle to go much beyond a lady called Edith Eager, if I'm honest. I, I really do. And, and I know if you listen to my show, you may have heard me say this, but th this conversation changed my life. Literally, there's a whole chapter in, in the book which really is based upon some of the things I learned in that conversation. And let me just share who Edith Eager is. Edith Eager is, uh, she's 90, she was 93 years old when I spoke to her. And when she was 16 years old, so she grew up in Eastern Europe, and I, I can remember this so well. She was basically quite excited. She was getting ready for a date that evening with her boyfriend at the time. And her family got a knock on the door. And it was basically the guards taking her, her sister, and her parents to Auschwitz concentration camp. And I know there were kids here. I'll try and say this in as a... Uh, um, yeah, I've got kids as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll be direct, but I, I think, think we're okay well, saying yeah. this. Hi, guys. You've heard this. But essentially... They get to Auschwitz. Uh, within two hours of going there, her parents um, aren't around anymore. Let's put it like that, okay? Within two hours of getting there. And she, later that day, was asked to dance for the senior prison guards uh, in Auschwitz. And she said to me, wrong, and I never forgot the last thing my mum said to me, which was, Edith, never forget that no one can take from you the contents that you put inside your mind. So she told me this, right? When she was dancing in front of the senior prison guards in Auschwitz, she said, I was not dancing in Auschwitz. I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. I uh, had a beautiful dress on. There was a full house. The orchestra was playing. That's where I was dancing. And I thought, okay, that's pretty incredible. And then, then she said to me, whilst I was in Auschwitz for those years I was there, I started to see the prison guards as the prisoners. They were not free in their mind. They weren't living their truth in their life. I was free. They were the ones who weren't free. And I thought, this is pretty incredible. And then the final thing she said to me, and I genuinely think about this every day, she said to me, Rongan, I have lived in Auschwitz, I've lived through Auschwitz, and I can tell you the greatest prison you'll ever live inside is the prison you create inside your own minds. Now, I am so passionate about this. I was chatting to Chris Evans about this this morning before we went on stage. I said, most stress in the world is self-generated. It's how you view that certain situation. Yes, there are lots of bad situations in life, but you can make it a lot worse by putting a negative spin on this, right? Now, I get Auschwitz is extreme, okay? I, I understand that. But just think about, you're trying to wait for your lunch, right? And someone's in the queue, and you think they butted inside of you, right? That you think they didn't see them. I can't believe they went in front of me and they've ordered, you know, I was in that queue. And then you tell yourself a story. God, they're selfish. I can't believe they did that, right? You tell your friends, you have a little gossip. Yeah, got my meal, but I can't. What we don't realize, this emotional stress is real. You're creating and generating stress, but you don't need to. You could take the view, you know what? They probably didn't see me. Maybe they're knacking and they're stressed about getting their kids fed, right? And so the whole chapter is about... Um, writing your own happiness story. Anytime you have a moment of friction in life, take a pause and write a story that empowers you, not one that actually makes you a victim. It sounds difficult, 
but it really isn't as hard. All you need to do is every day in the evening, just choose one moment from your day where you reacted in a way that made you a victim. Okay, you know what? What spin could I have put on that to empower me, right? This has probably been the thing that's changed my life the most because every time something like that happens, someone cuts you up in the road, right? Instead of calling them an idiot or saying they shouldn't have a driving license or whatever you might say, because here's the truth, when you say that, all you're doing is generating emotional stress in your body, and that emotional stress will have to be neutralized. How do we neutralize emotional stress? Sugar, alcohol, Instagram. The reason why most people, in my view, cannot stick to behavior change is because they haven't identified why am I engaging in that behavior in the first place. They keep buying the new diet book or the new diet plan. Right, I'm quitting sugar this time. The problem is the sugar was there to help you uh, deal with the stress that was in your life, which is why you can't stick to the diet plan. So taking it back to your original question, why did that conversation have such a big impact on me? Because I realized if Edith Eager in the hell of Auschwitz can rewrite a story, anytime I struggle in my life, I think, Rongan, you know what? If Edith can rewrite a story in Auschwitz, you can rewrite a story in your life. And it makes me a nicer person. It improves my relationships, my health, my sleep's better. And it's not as hard as you think. So if there's only one thing I would urge you to take away from this, and it's going to happen, there's going to be lots of people around, someone's going to do something that you find irritating later on today. Just challenge yourself to go, what's the happiness story? Another way of look, looking at it here is I say, how, what story do you need to write in your head to make that person a hero? Right? And try it. I promise you it will change your life. Right, we've got time for two questions if we're very quick. Hi, Rong and hi, Vassos. Um, it's a quick one, really. So I used to run like Vassos quite a lot, and I've been injured for eight months. And so physically and mentally, that's had a massive impact. What advice would you give on rebuilding that? Because to me, it's chicken and egg. Physical makes you mentally stronger. Mentally makes you physically stronger. So if you're stuck in the rut and you're at a low point, where would you start? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, are, you, are you injured to the point where you can't do anything anymore? Or is it just running? Uh, running mostly. Yeah, so there's a wider point here, right? And I'll come to your question directly. But the wider point for me is many of us now have only got one activity where we can truly switch off. Now, it could be a run or it could be walking with a podcast on or walking with music on. And the problem is, is when we're reliant on one activity, if an injury hits and you can no longer run, and I've seen this with patients all the time, you go into a vicious downward spiral because you can't do the thing anymore that was how you coped with stress or how you improve your mental well-being. This also applies to people who can only walk with podcasts in or music in. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying once or twice a week, try without because otherwise what happens, and I have one patient in mind, the Bluetooth signal doesn't work with their headphones. They're freaking out. They're literally panicked. They're trying to go for their walk. They're going to listen to something. The headphones are not working. They feel anxious, right? So you need multiple things in order to be able to switch off so you're not reliant on one thing. Now, for you, you can't run at the moment. At the moment, you will need to find an alternate activity, right? Could you swim, right? Could you, um, is there anything else in your life? You know, are you a musician? Do you like singing? Did you used to play the guitar? Could you, like, for example, I mentioned Tiger Woods before, right? So when Tiger was injured with his back, can't swing a golf club, what does he do? Oh, he just practices putting. So he literally, okay, I'm still going to keep getting better and do something for my golf game. I can't swing a club. I'm just going to use this opportunity to get even better at putting than I already am. And so, of course, you want to rehabilitate. 
So you can get back to running. I genuinely, for most runners, they can if they take the time to go to the root cause. And there's a lady I spoke to on my show called Helen Hall, who I think is one of the greatest coaches I've ever come across, who literally rehabilitates runners from chronic injuries who can't do anything and gets them back moving again. So I, would, I hope for you, you don't give up and I hope you actually go and try and get that rehabilitation. But I would find something, could you cycle? Could you use this as an opportunity to go, well, yeah, all I did was run, but maybe there's something unexplored in my life that actually if I got into it would give me the same benefits. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, so anyway, good luck then, but don't give up on running. I genuinely believe you're going to be able to get back to it if you identify what is the cause of your problem. One more, last one. Let's make it a belter. Hello. Hi. Um, thanks. That's amazing uh, discussion. You're an inspiration to everyone here today. Um, my question is around influence, um, working in the NHS particularly. Um, I wonder how we can har harvest your inspiration to actually move from a, an orthodox medical model of care, which is about prescription for medication, to much more of a prescription for well-being and all the things you've talked about today? What a good question. Round of applause for the last question. That's an excellent question. Yeah, I mean, brilliant question. I mean, this is, this is really kind of one of the big things that's driven my entire public-facing career. Because the truth is, the way we do healthcare now is it's a disease management system, not a healthcare it's not a healthcare system, it's disease management. That's kind of what we do. We wait until things are wrong and then we try and manage your disease. We don't even learn as doctors really how to create health. We learn how to diagnose and then treat. Now that has a role. I'm not saying that has no role, but the truth is that worked well about 50 years ago when most of what we saw was a, what, what, what we would call acute problems. So I don't know, 50 years ago, you come in with a bad chest infection or a pneumonia, your doctor in 10 minutes identifies that, says, this is what you've got. Let me give you this pill. Take it three times a day. And one week later, boom, your problem's gone. You know, medicine worked really well in that era. The problem in this era, 2022, right, 80 to 90% of what we see now as doctors, what goes into the healthcare system is a consequence of our collective modern lifestyles, right? Now, I am not putting blame on people, to be clear. I understand that life is difficult. People are struggling to make ends meet. There's all kinds of stress going on. I, I promise you, I understand that. This is not about blame, but this is saying the consequence of that is skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, gut problems, irritable bowel syndrome, diabetes, uh, and, and much worse. And the model of care we are taught simply does not get to the root cause of those problems. So how do we make a change? Well, I really like the Gandhi phrase, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, right? I, I live by that because when I, get dis, when I get disillusioned, I think, is anything changing? Are we actually changing this in the NHS? I think, no, be the change. Like, if you in your life become that change, that then radiates to the people around you, right? If you're, you know, what did I say about Edith Eager and seeking out friction? If you become that person who doesn't react negatively to people, who sees the best in people, and you show up day in, day out doing that, your network, whoever that might be, your circle of influence, we've all got a circle of influence. And it, it's my circle of influence is just as important as yours. If you show up, you're not reactive, you see the best in people, you're calm, you're content, that radiates to your children, to your work colleagues, to your parents, to all the people around you. So that's one aspect of that answer. 
Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I really believe things are changing in the NHS. I think most people realize that we can't keep doing what we're doing. I personally get so inspired that so many people who are NHS doctors or nurses or physios or OTs say we prescribe your podcast to our patients because we don't have enough time. So we introduce an idea and then we send them to one of your episodes or one of your books so they can learn about this. So I think things are changing. I, I'm generally an optimist. I think things are changing slowly. Um, but I'm not sure if we've got time to wait for the profession and the NHS to change, which is why so much of my work is public-facing, because I think if I can help inspire the public, person by person, to make one small change in their life, that will create a ripple effect, which will, before you know it, affect the whole of society. I really do believe that. Ronan, A, you're awesome. B, you're awesome. C, you're awesome. D... We have 30 seconds. Actually, we don't have 30 seconds. We have minus 11 minutes. But, but in 30 seconds, I just want to sort of end where we started, which is the first chapter of the book. Write your happy ending, it's called. So in 30 seconds, please, final question. Write what's Rongan's happy ending? Okay, so this is about an exercise in the book. Let's be really clear. The second part is, and I want you all to do this later, on your deathbed, imagine you're on your deathbed, what are three things, when you look back on your life, what are three things you'll want to have done, right? This is not morbid. This will help you live a more intentional life today. And actually, let me give you a clue. We know what pretty much everyone says because palliative care nurses tell us, I wish I'd worked less. I wish I spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd lived my life and not the life that other people expected of me, right? There, there are some clues in what you can do, right? Once you've written those three things down, then write down what are three things you will have to do each week to make sure that if you do that week after week, you will end up with the happy ending that you desire. So what does that look like for me? At the end of my life, I would want to have done three things. Nourished the, my most important relationships in my life, which my wife and my kids are there. They are absolutely three of the most important people in my life. Right? I want to have nourished those relationships. Number two, I will want to have made sure I had time to follow my passion, the things that I like. Number three, I will want to have positively impacted the lives of other people. So what does that mean on a weekly basis? Right, on a weekly basis, if I do these three things, I know I'll get the happy ending that I've just written. Number one, if I have regular time with them, five meals undistracted with my wife and kids each week, I know I do that week in, week out, I'll get that number one happy ending. Number two, if I have time each week to play my guitar, write a song, do some singing, go for a run, I know week on week, at the end of my life, I will say, yeah, I've had time to engage in my passions. And number three, if I record an episode of my podcast every week, which I do, I know at the end of my life, I will impact the lives of other people. Do your own version of that. Tell someone what you're doing. Have that accountability. And I promise that exercise will help you be happier and more contented today. This is the book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And that man is a force for good. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, everyone. Thank you, guys. I'll see you at the book signing. Enjoy your festival. Thanks, Massos. Cheers, buddy. He's 
is our favourite, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, in conversation with our very own Vassos Alexander. This has been a How to Wow Carfest pop-up special. There'll be more. This has been episode three. Look out for episode four from wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And if you fancy some of this live in person in a field this summer, check out our website at carfest.org for tickets for Carfest 2023, our first ever one big Carfest, August 25th, August 26th, August 27th, Lavastoke Park.